Our reading this morning comes from Dr. Howard Thurman. There must be always remaining in each person's life some place for the singing of angels, some place for that which in itself is breathlessly beautiful and by an inherent prerogative throws all the rest of life into a new and creative interrelatedness, something that gathers up in itself all the freshets of experience from drab and commonplace areas of living and glows in one bright light of penetrating beauty and meaning and then passes. The commonplace is shot through with new glory. Old burdens become lighter. Deep and ancient wounds lose much of their old, old hurting. A crown is placed over our heads that for the rest of our lives we are trying to grow tall enough to wear. Despite all the crassness of life, despite all the harshness of life, despite all of the harsh discords of life, life is saved by the singing of angels. So it happened a long time ago now, so far back actually that it would be reasonable if I forgot the details, but they are crystal clear in my mind, the way it felt, the way things looked. That moment when I was 18 years old and I made my way for the very first time into a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Now I made my way in those doors and I have to tell you, I was anything but happy and excited when I got there. I had left my hometown in Maryland a few months before to go to college, and nearly as soon as my parents pulled away in their rented minivan and left me there, I came out to myself and to those around me as a lesbian. Now, I'd been waiting for this moment. I'd chosen my college for it, everything. I was waiting for this moment of honesty and relief and support. But I'll tell you, when I came out, I felt none of that hoped-for emotion. Instead, I found in myself this feeling of fear that kind of seeped into everything. You see, even though I had moved away now, what I carried with me were the memories of what had happened to my friends at home in high school. Friends of mine that had dared to come out had been beaten up, they'd been shamed, they'd been disowned by their family. One of my closer friends had been run down by a car outside of a gay bar. I knew it was dangerous to come out. And even though I was in this place that had a lot of support to offer, I still felt so much fear inside. I was worried that something was going to happen to me too. So scared and angry, I did my best to push people away from me. I got the obligatory coming out flat top haircut of the time. I bought myself a pair of biker boots with a big chain on them. I got myself a motorcycle black leather jacket and I suited up in my armor. That armor, my jacket, those boots, it all became my protection, literally and figuratively. Each morning I'd pull on my boots, I'd look in the mirror and straighten out my one inch of hair, I'd don the armor of my jacket around me, trying to make myself ready for the assault that I was sure was coming my way. To keep myself safe, I did my best to put a distance between you and me, between myself and my fears and my vulnerabilities. 
On the outside, I know I exuded rage. I exuded this sense of stay away from me. But on the inside, on the inside, all I really wanted was for someone to see past all of it. I wanted someone to see me, to have a real deep connection. I hoped for wholeness and relief. It was that year, it was sometime during that year that a friend suggested I try this Unitarian Universalist Society of Northampton and Florence in, in Massachusetts. And over time, it became my church home. I walked into Unitarian Universalism feeling frightened and broken, feeling scarred and scattered and angry, not sure if it was really safe to hope that this place was going to be any different than all of the other places in my world. I came into this place, to that congregation across the country, and the folks there literally loved me back together again. You see, I walked in and it was the small things, the small things that made an enormous difference. Living out there in the rest of the world where I felt sure that people were against me, where I felt distant, to come into a place where every single person from the usher to the people sitting next to me in the pews to the ministers, they all looked me in the eye, no matter what I looked like on the outside. They looked me in the eye, they shook my hand, they said to me, we are so glad you're here, and they meant it. It was healing beyond belief. As I opened up more and more, they saw me more and more, they drew me out of myself. They helped me to knit myself back together again. They taught me that I was a beautiful, valuable person, something that the rest of the world didn't always reflect back to me. They taught me that I had gifts inside to give and that I could, if I dared, I could learn to trust the world again and that if I did, there would be huge gifts in it for me. Over time, that community invited me to take off my armor, piece by piece, whether I wore the jacket or not. They invited me to open my heart again and again, more than I thought was possible. There was this expression I began to use about what happened to me when I went to church on Sunday, because my friends were like, what are you doing? This is not really consistent with how we see you for some of them, and I said, well, the thing about going to church on Sunday is that it feels like I'm getting this great big hug, this huge hug of unconditional love and support and care, followed by a swift kick in the pants, (laughs) which I really valued, both of those pieces of the equation, this opportunity to feel loved and whole and cared for, but also a clear urging to go out and make the world a better place to dare and to risk in my life and in the world. So that congregation, it helped me to begin taking off my armor piece by piece to open up my heart. And I'm sure that we don't all share exactly the same journey. We haven't been on the same path, but I do believe that most of us probably do wear some sort of armor, whether we know it or not, some defenses that we carry against the onslaught of this world from time to time, be it racism or violence, be it hatred, be it 
all of the things, materialism, consumerism, all those things that can break us down, can break our hearts, I believe we put our armor on sometimes, whether we know it or not. And here in this church community, we are dared, invited again and again to take it off, to let our hearts open to the possibility of all that might be. In so many ways, that congregation back in Massachusetts, it, like I said, it loved me back together again, but it also held a crown above my head that for the rest of my life I am trying to live into. That crown image we heard earlier in the reading by Dr. Thurman. They did that for me. And I think we can do it for each other, too. But let me say a little bit more about this crown image. You see, I've been fascinated by it for the last several months. This reading came up as we were preparing for the Christmas services. The ministers were sitting around and we were talking to each other about which readings to include in the Christmas Eve service. And Justin brought out this singing of angels by Dr. Thurman. And I had never heard it before, even though I've read a lot of his works. And I thought, that is gorgeous. There are so many beautiful images in that piece, but the one that I can't shake is that image of a crown above our heads that we are our whole lives trying to grow tall enough to live into, that crown. Now, this image, like so many great prophets and teachers, they, they land on one or two or three awesome images and they work them over and over again in their teachings and their writings and their sermons. So I had to do some digging to find out where this image came from originally. And as far as I can tell, if you go back in Dr. Thurman's writing, this image of a crown being placed above our heads that we are forever trying to grow tall enough to live into. It comes from his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which was, in many ways, a field manual for the civil rights movement here in the United States. And in this book, Dr. Thurman talks about a particular kind of love, a love that's embodied in this crown. And he does it by explaining an old story, a teaching story about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus and the adulterer. Perhaps some of you have heard it before. It goes like this. In this story, there are a crowd of angry people, and they bring forward a woman to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we caught this woman. She is an adulteress. We caught her red-handed. She needs to be punished. The punishment in our place is stoning by death. What is your judgment, Jesus? They ask him. And in that moment, Thurman says, in that moment, the crowd sees the woman not as a person, not as someone with inherent worth and dignity, but instead they see her kind of as an it, as a crime, as an adulterer only. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, he who has no sin, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And then there is quiet, a piercing quiet, Thurman says. The kind of quiet that explodes the situation. It reminds me of the the story that Justin told last week about Parker Palmer and the clearness committee and how sometimes you get just the right question or just the right statement and all of a sudden things go quiet as the deep truth begins to bubble up in each of us. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And the quiet pierces the situation. 
As the story goes, Jesus waited then, and one by one, the men crept away. The woman was left there alone. And hearing nothing, Jesus lifted his head and looked at the woman eye to eye and says to her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she replies. Well, neither do I condemn thee, he says. Go and sin no more. It's this moment that Thurman lifts up over and over, this moment where he says Jesus displayed extraordinary love. He met the woman where she was, Thurman writes. He treated her as if she were already where now she willed herself to be. In dealing with her, he believed her into the fulfillment of her possibilities. I love that. He believed her into the fulfillment of her possibilities. He placed a crown over her head for the rest of her life, which she would keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. Now, as far as I can tell, this is the origin of that crown image in Dr. Thurman's writings. It's Jesus believing the accused into the fulfillment of her possibilities. It's Jesus stirring confidence into activity. It's meeting someone where they are and treating them as if they were already where they wished to be. This is that love that Thurman says Jesus is trying to teach us about. This is the kind of love that has the power to transform all of us, he said, oppressed and oppressor. When we hold that image of the crown above our heads that we are forever trying to live into, it can change us. I know as I've been living with this image, I find myself imagining that crown not just over my head, but over your heads as well. When I encounter folks and we find ourselves in difficult conversations and I imagine the crown over their head and the crown over mine, I find my spine straightening a little bit. I find myself living into the person I hope to be more and more. This is a kind of love, a kind of experience, the one that Dr. Thurman talks about with Jesus and the woman, this kind of love, to me, it is that love that will not let us go. That's what I mean when I say that phrase. The love where someone else, or maybe even from within, we share that image of who we could be. We won't let it go. We hold each other in that gaze. Those moments when we remember we are bound together when we are one piece, one garment. This is the kind of love that has the power to heal and transform us, both privileged and oppressed. This is the kind of love. It's a forgiving kind of love, even, that I want to talk about today. In this series of sermons on calling, I think about this love as the calling out, the kind of love that calls us out and into the people we can become. Maybe you already know this in your life. I'm guessing that many of you do or that you have at some point in time. That love of a teacher or a mentor, a partner or a spouse, a parent, a friend. Maybe it's love that comes from your community of faith or from a total stranger. This love can help us to see ourselves differently at times, to call out in us something we didn't even know was there 
to tap a wellspring in us. This is a kind of healing, transforming love that can help us to know ourselves as whole people again, leaning in to the stream of life and love and humanity. This is that love that will not let us go. Sometimes it takes the shape of people close at hand. Sometimes, for me, it is ancestors pulling this out of me, our universalist ancestors shaping us with the legacy of love again and again. This love, I hear about it all the time. This love is there, as I have read and listened I don't know if any of you know the author Rachel Naomi Remen. She's kind of famous for the book Kitchen Table Wisdom and a few others after that too. This amazing doctor and author and speaker. And in her book Kitchen Table Wisdom, she shares this particular story. She says, in the beginning of December, the year that I turned 13, my father declared bankruptcy. That was the year that we all made our Christmas presents. Despite the stress in our household, On Christmas morning, the living room looked much the same as it always did. The familiar decorations were out, and the coffee table was piled high with gifts. This year, though, the gifts weren't wrapped in the beautiful paper we were accustomed to. Instead, they were all wrapped up in last year's red ribbon and the sporting green section of the newspaper. But among all of those gifts, there was a small velvet box, she said. Even at 13, she tells us, I knew that such a box was not likely to contain a homemade gift. I looked at it with suspicion. My father handed it to me that morning and said, it's for you. Open it. Inside, she says, were a pair of 24-karat gold earrings. They were exquisite. I stared at them in silence, she says, bewildered, feeling the weight of my homeliness, my shyness, my hopeless difference from my classmates who easily joked and flirted and laughed. Aren't you going to try them on? prompted her father. So she took them into the bathroom, she closed the door and put them on her ears. Cautiously, she says, I looked into the mirror. My sallow, pimply face, my lank hair, oily before it even dried from the shower, looked much as it always did. The earrings looked absurd. Tearing them from my ears, she says, I rushed back into the living room and I flung them on the floor. How could you do this to me? I shrieked at my father. Are you trying to make fun of me? This is not funny. Take them back. They look stupid. I'm too ugly to wear them, she said. How could you waste our money on this? And she burst into tears. My dad, she says, he didn't say anything until I had cried myself out. And then he passed me his clean, folded handkerchief. I know they don't look right now, he said. I bought them because someday they will suit you perfectly. I'm truly grateful to have survived my adolescence, she says. At some of my lowest moments, I would get out the box and look at the earrings. My father had spent $100 that he did not have because he believed in the person I was becoming. It was something to hold on to. Rachel's father gave her something to hold on to 
a different image of herself, a sense of possibility of who and what she might become. He knew that beauty and confidence and a feeling of wholeness were just a matter of time for his daughter. He knew that he could hold out that vision for her in his gaze of hopeful expectancy. He knew that his faith could stand in for her own in her difficult years, in that time of adolescence. He could believe in her when she didn't believe in herself. He trusted in her potential and possibility, and in doing so, he taught her to do the same for herself. It doesn't always happen with earrings, but it happens, I think, for us. We can offer that gift of believing in each other, of seeing the potential and the possibility in each other. Often it is from one another that we first draw the strength to imagine ourselves differently. Often it is others who hold that crown up above our heads, urging us toward a possibility we spend our lives trying to grow into. It is a gift we can offer each other, a gift we can offer to ourselves, this calling out, this love that says, no, I will not let you go. This is a gift we can offer each other in our homes, in our workplaces, right here in our congregation. When we hold one another in that steady gaze of hopeful expectancy, when we lift that crown up above our heads and the heads of those around us, we can hold one another with a love that will not let us go. May we do just that. May we take off our armor. May we allow our spines to straighten, our hearts to open as we grow into that crown above each of our heads. May it be so. And amen.